Hi, my name is Lloyd Sarbat, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome writer, translator, and lecturer Dennis Duncan, who has published translations of Foucault, explored the experimental writings of Italo Calvino and Georges Perec, and contributed articles to The Guardian, The Times Literary Supplement, and The London Review of Books. In his new book, Index, A History of the, Dennis enthuses about how the book Index came to be, its uses and abuses, and its influence on the internet and Google. I hope you enjoy it. So we are live. Yeah, um, so this is uh, the Liberia podcast and I'm pleased to welcome Dennis Duncan, whose uh, new book, uh, A History of the Index, is uh, published by Penguin. Um, so just to kick off, let's, let, let's sack off the preamble. Um, first question, um, the index is taken for granted, um, but what is it exactly? Uh, well, just just to say, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, um, very nice to meet you. Um, what well, a good question. So, I suppose an index is um, two. An index is a table, and and it's a table that has two uh, columns. Um, one column with a heading, the thing that you look up, and a second column that tell that points you off in another direction. It points like an index finger. It it points you off to a, a part of the text, or or in fact, a part of the in- internet. Which, which, we can come to in a sec. Um, the important thing is that both of those, no, the left-hand column essentially has to have an ordering system that we know already. That there's no point looking for something in an index that doesn't have alphabetical order because then you might as well be looking for it in the main text. So the idea that we all know the order of the letters, the alphabet, means that when I'm looking at Pollock Jackson in the index to a, to a book on art. I know that it's just after halfway through because P is just after halfway through the alphabet. So that idea of two columns, one of which has an order that we already know, and the other will point us off, will in- indicate where we need to look for it. When we search the web, we're searching an index there. So, so um, Google talk about their processes, crawling and indexing. When you type a term into a search engine, uh, Google doesn't then go off and search the internet. It's already done that. It does that every day in the background, and it calls that crawling, and then it puts the result into what it calls an index. So when you type your search terms, you're looking something up in Google's index of the internet. Yeah, and there's a particular syntax with uh, Google, um, because you, you mention in the book you've got the archaic uh, Ask Jeeves, which I remember as a 15-year-old, yeah. <laughs> and you would write in um, the question as you would ask it, but now with uh, Google you can just go um, index plus history or you know uh, minus if you wanted a key term taken out. Yeah, you know, that's, that's right. I think we've all got used to over the last 20 years, and I've, I find it really fascinating how... When I say we've all got used to, all of us, culturally, across all generations, we've got used to how to use a search engine. Um, yeah, in the late 90s, we had a, a search engine where you could type, please, could you tell me the capital of Outer Mongolia? And it doesn't care about the word please or could or anything like that, but it would intuit what you want. Now, we don't do that anymore, but even my mum, even you know, every generation has, has learned, okay, what are the search terms? Because this is just an index. How would I use the search engine like I'd use an index? Out of Mongolia, capital, thank you very much. Yeah. And, and 
um, yeah, the, the internet is basically taking uh, a form that's existed for uh, hundreds, if not uh, a millennia, really, of years. Um, so I guess to cut all the way back, mm. how did uh, an index um, kind of form? Like how, what, what were the seeds that, uh, of its genesis? Right, that's a really good question. So the index emerges round about the year 1230. So it's, it's almost 800 years old. Um, and it's one of those inventions that gets invented twice. Think of other things like that. The light bulb is invented you know, twice simultaneously. Mathematical calculus, two people come up with the same idea. The index is invented twice in the year 1230, once in Paris and once in Oxford. But I always think with these inventions that are sort of invented simultaneously, they tell us something really important. They tell us that culture was absolutely ripe for it. There was a very pressing need for it. So I'll come to the, the, the um, inventions in a sec. <clears throat> I think it's worth thinking about why was it? Why did it come, uh, come about then? Because obviously there was a need because two people thought of it. Um, what that was was two things. The arrival of universities. Universities sort of emerge in the late, late 12th, early 13th century. And in the early 13th century, the preaching orders. So before you had monasteries in the middle of nowhere where monks would spend their life outside society. Um, but for various reasons, various heresies, um, the preaching orders, the Franciscans and the Dominicans who lived in the cities, among the people, preaching to people, stopping them from going astray, sprang up at the start of the 13th century. Um, with universities and with preaching, you need to be able to use books quickly because you need to write lectures and you need to write sermons. So instead of spending your whole life in a monastery with six books in the library, just reading the Bible slowly every day, suddenly you need to, imagine being a student, you need to get that essay done. You need to... Yeah, you want to disseminate knowledge. Exactly, yeah. Just yeah. And in order to do that, you can't just read books, you need to use books. Books need to be, the Bible particularly, needs to be turned into a uh, morselized set of information. Yeah. I'm going to do a sermon this week. It's going to be about fish. So I'm going to preach on fish. Where's all the moments? There's the feeding of the 5,000. What else is there? Where do you look for, you know, for this engaging sermon about we're all like fish, the fishermen of souls, whatever? Um, now, where is that? Now, an index will tell you where to get all of those things. Um, this is what happens in Paris, in the Dominican uh, Priory in Paris. Around about the year 1230, um, the, the friars there set about doing a word index to the Bible. That's called a concordance, where they go through the Bible, the whole flipping Bible, they take every word in it, apart from like little particles like the or prepositions, but 10,000 of the main key words in the Bible, and they note down all of the places where they appear. Uh, every chapter of every book, every seventh of every chapter where they appear. That's 129,000 references for the top 10,000 words in the Bible. And they put them all in alphabetical order. So it's easy to find them. Yeah, uh, so the word God and holy must have its own <laughs> book alone, right? Certain so things like God and sin are really difficult because they have enormous entries. So uh, they do refine that, actually, within a couple of decades. They, they give you a little snippet, just like um, the, the snippet view on Google Books, that, they, that the monks invent that in, in the sort of 1240s. Um, but the other thing is, in, um, in Oxford, um, at the, uh, around about 1230 again, um, there's a gentleman called Robert Grosstest, who is an incredibly learned polymath. He's just about to become Bishop of Lincoln. He's in his 50s at this point. Um, 
who's had a very sort of distinguished peripatetic career, uh, really, but born into poverty um, and, and has risen to be just about to be Bishop of Lincoln, and he's read everything. He knows the Bible like the back of his hand. He's read all the church fathers. He's also gone backwards into pagan literature. He's read Aristotle. He's translated Aristotle. He's interested in Arabic philosophers. So he's read the translations of um, the, the most recent of the Arabic philosophers. He's read everything. How does he remember it? Well, he jots down as he goes along. He creates an index of everything. He has about 500 ideas where he thinks these are the key topics that I'll probably need to look up in my reading. So whenever he notes one of those ideas in his reading, he does a little sign for it in the margin, and then he scans his margin and adds it to a list, an index of all of those things. So what happens is you, you get two versions of the index. Then you have the word index in Paris, the concordance. Um, and then you have the subject index in Oxford, which is gross tests index. These are uh, sort of subjective. These are gross tests, 440 most important topics that he needs to remember. And little notes telling him where yeah, to go. It was for its own lexicon, wasn't it? That's yeah, right, yeah. yeah, with these beautiful little signs. So imagination is a flower. Every time he comes across the concept of imagination, he's writing it as a little flower in the margin. And then he'll go back through his margins and, and jot down what was that location? Oh, there was that bit in St. Thomas where he, about the imagination. I'll put a reference to that. But this, I think of as, as the sort of the, the medieval Google. This is uh, um, the guy who's read everything, has made notes on where you can find everything. Um, so instead of being an index to just one book, this is the index to everything that Robert Grosstest has read. Uh, and there, there, there's not much left. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and even Grosstest is, um, that, that's not his real surname, is it? it, it um... Well, we don't know. So Grosstest is, uh, if you think of modern French, uh, Grosstest, uh, sort of big head. Um, so we don't know if he was actually called, from a line called the, the big head family, or if it was just when his natural talent for totally capacious reading emerged, it became a nickname, oh, Robert Bighead. Not because he was uh, um, what we'd call now big-headed, but because he just had so much storage. Yeah. Um, possibly it's the latter, but we don't know what his, his like I say, he came from very kind of reduced circumstances. Uh, we don't know what his family uh, um, was called. It might just be, you know, Robert the big-headed. Yeah, yeah, and it's just, um, he is that polymath who <laughs> yeah, just... Exactly, yeah. And, and with the, when he's creating his own lexicon, is he designing it just for personal use? Because um, the, the concordance of the Bible seems like a public service. But um, Robert's um, personal lexicon is more just like an aid memoir. So is that, that the two functions? Of that's a really good question. I, we don't quite know the answer to that. Absolutely, the concordance is uh, um, is public service. And these concordances get copied out and copied out. And, and I think today there are about 28 surviving medieval manuscripts of concordances to the Bible, which means that was a bestseller. That is a lot of surviving copies of the same book. When I say copies, these were literally you know, copied out by hand, 10,000 entries, 129,000 references. At least, at least 28 of these have survived for six or 700 years. Um, so that was, that was a useful thing that, that preachers, that priests, that friars would use, would, would have like, like we all have the same copy of the same textbook if we're studying a certain thing. Gross test, don't know. Um, it's difficult to know whether this was just for, for him and his followers uh, or just for him. Uh, there's, a, there's a note, there's only one surviving copy of this, 
in a library uh, in Lyon these days, and there's a note at the top saying, compiled by Rob Grosstest and Adam Marsh. So certainly there was one of his followers who was also involved in it, so it could be uh, for use within his circle, but it didn't have the same sort of mass appeal. It didn't catch on, I have to say, the same way. That the, I mean, the concordance is really the model for everything that for all of our indexes now uh the book index i wonder if you'd say the concordance is also the model for when you uh, scroll through your alphabetical contacts on your phone you know all of these sort of alphabetical tables um the concordance really caught on i love gross tests but i, I sometimes fear that he might be the Betamax of, of the sort of index. Yeah, the better technology, like the more interesting, <laughs> that's but right. the yeah. one that doesn't actually get taken up by I, the popular. I, I don't, it's much harder to, to argue there's a, a real direct through line but between what he did and what we do today. Yeah. And how does the, um, the concordance um, kind of evolve into, um, uh, well, it, it goes through so many kind of iterations, it gets used and abused. And then it becomes um, a way of uh, organising big data, um, like IBM and punch cards. And yeah, yeah. Um, can we can we touch on that in as much depth as you want? Because most of the book is like this beautiful history of uh, different places and spaces and people, um, spats and feuds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And I mean, some of that is just really entertaining. Well, absolutely, yes. Um, well, the concordance really catches on. Um, so towards the, the, the late medieval period, indexes are relatively common. You find them uh, um, uh, quite a lot. Uh, there's still the problem that uh, since books are all copied out, um, page numbering isn't, uh, isn't a given. You might have a copy. You, Lloyd in Brick Lane, you've got a copy of this book. I'm sitting up in Muswell Hill with my copy of this book. Um, we aren't going to be on the same page. You know, you might have a big copy of the book, and, and mine, the, the format is smaller. So I've got a 600-page book. You've got a 300-page copy of the same thing. So aside from certain things like the Bible, which has divided into chapters, around about the year 1200, actually, it gets divided into chapters, uh, or um, Aristotle, Usually indexes in the late medieval period only work for that copy of the book. And it's really when printing comes along, um, we can all be on the same page. If it came off the same press in the same print run, then I can write to you and say, Lord, you're going to love this. Look at page 17, and I know that your page 17 is the same as my page 17. Indexes then get a massive boost, because you can index anything. You can use the actual format of the book, the structure of the book, rather than thinking about where is it... Right. Thematically, yeah. Where, what chapter is it? Where you know which part of the thought of the book is that? You can just say, "Oh, it's on page 17," um, and and know that that translates to, to anyone who's got the same edition. So, by the start of the early modern period, by the start of the 16th century, you find indexes everywhere. Not just nowadays; you get them in in uh, non-fiction, but you don't tend to get them in fiction. You do a little bit at the start of the 16th century. Um, there's even a really nice bit in. Orlando Furioso, this great uh, um, Italian epic, around about 1516, where a knight is given a spell book and suddenly he needs to use it and it says something like, and he knew exactly where to look because he turned to the index. So even spell books, you know, in, in, in the sort of popular imagination of the early 16th century, have an index. What this means is everyone knows how to use them. And once you have something that everyone understands, um, people can start to play off it. You can start to sort of riff on it or abuse it um, so at the start of the 18th century, just the turn of the 18th century, we find 
I suppose what I call index wars. You find um, people attacking their, their rivals, political rivals, academic rivals, in the form of an index. If you publish a book and I want to take you down, then I'll publish an index to that book, or maybe even an edition of that book, including your text, but with the addition of um, an index, pointing out all the moments that you were banal or arrogant or a little bit popish or uh, you said something that was over complimentary about French people or you know the, all of the the sort of uh, um, prejudices of the time come out in these sort of attack indexes these satirical indexes give you an example there's a, um, a politician called William Bromley the year 1705 Bromley is running for Speaker of the House he's an MP but he wants to be effectively Prime Minister Speaker of the House of Commons um, and his rival, a man called Robert Harley, wants to take him down. Now, about 15 years before, when he was a young man, Bromley did the Grand Tour. He went round Europe, he went round France and Italy, and he also did what lots of young aristocrats did. He wrote it up and published a, you know, a little book, Juvenilia, his uh, account of his Grand Tour. 1705, three days before the election for Speaker of the House, suddenly that book turns up again. Perfectly timed. Perfectly timed. <laughs> the timing is incredible. I mean, sometimes you think that, that, that uh, sort of laser-guided timing is, is only something that we can do in, in, in the sort of the age of blogging or something. But no, these days, three days is, is just long enough for the, everyone to be talking about this, but not long enough for the, the, you know, the news cycle to have moved on. Yeah, three days before, uh, there's Bromley's book again, and this time it has an index with all of these things I was just saying about Oh, he's stupid. He sounds like a kid. He's naive. How could you possibly vote for this idiot as Speaker of the House? Sure enough, Bromley loses the election, and he's absolutely certain that A, it was Harley's fault, and B, it was because he did that bloody index of my... And that, that was very unfair. So um, a copy, Bromley's own copy of this, Bromley somehow came by this, um, with his angry marginalia saying, this is a very malicious act by the Speaker of the House, and it cost me the election. Um, oh, uh, survives or survived and was, was documented. He definitely thought that index brought me down. Then we find the same thing happening on the. And that was that was a a, um, a Tory being brought down. We find uh, Tory indexes then attacking uh, Whig travel writers. Um, so we get this this really kind of fun period over about ten or fifteen years at the start of the eighteenth century of people taking each other down in the form of. I don't see why we don't do that these days. I mean, it's still kind of ripe for it. Um, and sometimes, sometimes serious. Now, these, these are all sort of uh, um, a bit like private eye. These are sort of public performances, you know, designed for people to, to read, to laugh, to get the satire, and to, uh, um, you know, for, for the target to be diminished in people's uh, consciousnesses. Around the same time, though, you also get a secret version of this. You get a very biased Tory history of England, particularly biased around the, 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 the history of the Civil War. Um, a few decades before, with a very biased Whig index. So the index has sort of slipped through the editorial process, and the index makes fun of the text. Now, the, the, this is good fun for us now, but actually this is a massive history of England. It's a three-volume history of England. You're not going to read it from start to finish. Anyone who's been a student knows that when you study history, when you've got a massive book that's a thousand pages, you use it. You don't read it from start to finish, you use it. You're using the index it's by a different type of reading, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. different type of reading. Perfectly. So the, the, the rogue indexer here is really the gatekeeper. And by giving this sarcastic spin on the text, they're really determining 
um, how this history works. You know, by the time you come to read the actual history, you're already laughing at it. You're already on side with the, the other team. If yeah, you like. you're spotting the pomposity and yeah. um, the, the counterfactuals. Yeah. Exactly that. So in the Victorian period, 100 years later, very famous um, Whig historian uh, called Thomas Macaulay writes a, a, another history of England, and he's aware of this, and he's sort of parting speech to his publishers, it says, let no damn Tory index my history, because he knows that whoever controls the back of the book controls the way that readers are going to interpret to access. It. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And, and the index, um, as a way of um, like a point of entry or a point of departure in terms of um, interpreting a text, that causes a lot of anxiety that is even um, parlayed by Socrates um, in Plato's... Kind of uh, right, okay, so this is... Uh, um well, this is a bit of a bugbear of mine, or a tub that I kind of want to thump, that there's an idea, I think, around digital reading, um, that we don't do it properly, that we used to read properly in these days. So a gentleman called Nicholas Carr wrote a book about 10 years ago called Is Google Making Us Stupid? And I think that phrase really crystallises an idea, an anxiety. Oh, God, are we reading properly anymore? Because all of our reading starts on that sort of launch pad, the, the, the results page of a Google search. Um, is that bad? Did we used to read better? Oh, we're becoming um, shallow, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, and I really don't hold with that idea. I think, first of all, it's naive. First of all, it, it uh, ignores the, the way that, or the ways that we read. I mean, in any given day, we read in uh, a dozen different modes. The, the way that I read a novel is not the way that I read a newspaper, or the way that I read a tweet, or a restaurant menu, or a road sign, or an advertisement. Each of these types of reading sort of implies a different mode of attention. So th there's no um, sort of platonic ideal of reading. And each of these modes of reading has its own history, emerges at a certain time, novelistic reading. You don't, you don't have that um, sort of going back more than, more than 300 years, really. Um, and so I'm a little bit intolerant of uh, this sort of stick that's being used to beat the next generation if you don't read properly anymore. Um, and I think with this history, what I find is that you see that same um, idea or that same sort of stick being used to, to, to beat the, the present generation. Nobody reads properly anymore. As far back as you want to go, that, that um, you find it a lot at the start of the 18th century. You find Erasmus saying it in, in, in the 1530s. You find an anxiety about it in... Uh, in Caxton, the very first English printed books. The pr problem is, with indexes, what if, what if nobody reads the book anymore? What, what if they don't read it from start to finish? Is that bad? Yeah. Um, well, I don't think it is. It, it really depends what people want to get out of it. Uh, um, but the idea that this is bad, that nobody reads properly anymore, is always there alongside the index. Oh, God, indexes. Nobody reads properly anymore. Um, so you mentioned it going right back to, to, um, to Plato, to Socrates. Plato has a, um, a dialogue called the, uh, the Phaedrus, where Socrates meets his friend Phaedrus, and uh, they talk about reading. And Socrates is very dismissive of reading. Socrates says, oh, dear, nobody's going to remember things properly anymore. Now, speech, that has real presence. That's where... Um, you really get the uh, sort of present intention. Exactly, yeah. Um, but uh, writing, this newfangled writing, uh, people will always defer it. They'll always, you know, instead of paying proper attention, they'll say, well, I can always come back to that. Um, 
so I, I suppose the argument that I wanted to make is when you find this thing going alongside the index, the whole history of the index of like, oh dear, nobody's going to use books properly anymore. That's just an iteration of, of an anxiety that goes back, um, goes back to writing, you know, uh, um, writing is the first example of, oh dear, nobody. And um, if we can accept that, that writing hasn't uh, brought down uh, the, the entire edifice of, of scholarship, um, then I think we should be able to accept that uh, the ways that we read evolve um, and that we shouldn't worry about some platonic ideal of proper reading that we don't do anymore. We're all too distracted. Um, we read the way that we read because these, this is the kind of uh, literary ecology that we live in, uh, the ecosystem, the technology, the culture, the amount of leisure time we have. That's how we read. It couldn't be otherwise. Yeah, it's how you navigate a territory. Um, like you have a chapter called The Map in the Territory where you can't, you can't encompass the terrain uh, uh, on a one-to-one -one scale. Uh, Borges um, writes about that as a kind of a, like a, uh, one of his witty yeah. pieces of fiction. And yeah, so the index is a map and um, it kind of distills ideas for us to navigate vast spaces over short periods of time. Yeah, that's really right. The index is a map. Uh, that's right. So, uh, you know, ideally, an index would be as big as the book that it indexes. The, the Bible concordance isn't far off. Um, but, but then it wouldn't be very useful because like a map that's as big as the territory, well, it's, how's it saving time then? Reading is about um, uh, an economy. Uh, indexing is, is about an economy of time. Um, it helps us to get what we need from a book without having to linearly start on page one and read till we find the thing we needed. Um, now, if you have a map that's as big as the territory, then you have to walk to the place on the map that you might as well be walking to in the territory. Yeah. So an index will always be sort of the, the what Shakespeare calls the, the baby figure of, uh, of the giant mass. Um, and in that condensation, in that sort of distilling something down into its baby figure, well, there's going to be loss. So we have to accept uh, um, that there will be some subjectivity in terms of what what we lose, what's, uh, um, uh, yeah, what's at stake really there. Uh, so that's part of where this anxiety about, uh, um, about indexes comes from. Yeah, and the um, writing an index and the, the idea of loss, like that attenuation, um, you, you, you mention in the book in passages uh, that reference Shakespeare and the baby idea and that reading an index um, gives you uh, a condensed version of the book that saves you actually having to engage fully with the book, which leads yeah. into the fear. Um, I don't know where this is going. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm just linking the constellations, but um, I, I guess, uh, was it in one of Shakespeare's works where um, the Battle of Troy and one of yeah. the characters talks about Achilles versus Hector and that basically whatever the outcome of this is going to be the outcome of the greater war. Mm. Um, and well, can I, can I yeah. interrupt with an anecdote? That this is from just before Shakespeare's time. This is from the late in the reign of, of Henry VIII. The year is 1543. And what this is about is the difference between a concordance, which is a word index, which takes every word um, ideologically neutrally. It just takes the words of a text and puts them in alphabetical order. And a subject index, um, which is where somebody thinks about, well, what are the key points here? 
somebody intervenes. Now, that's always a mediation. We can say that it's, it's ideologically neutral, but it might not be. Um, and that's, if you're going to distill something down, then you need somebody to choose what elements are being, uh, you know, how it's being reduced. So the year 1543, um, it's Windsor. Uh, um, and a man called John Marbeck has his house raided by the religious authorities um, who think that Marbeck might be part of a heretical sect, a sect called the, the Calvinists. Now, Marbeck hasn't been educated. Um, he's a chorister. He sings at St. George's Chapel in, in Windsor Castle, um, but he doesn't have uh, significant education. He hasn't been taught Latin. So the authorities think that he's a minor player in a bigger sect, and they want to lean on him to grass up um, the, the more important figures in this sort of um, Windsor heresy. So he's arrested, he's taken to London to Marshall Sea Prison, and he's probably going to be burned at the stake. While they're searching his house, they find he's been compiling an index to the Bible, and he's got as far as the letter L. Um, now, during the interrogation, he's being interrogated by all of the bishops, by the, the, the um, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, and it turns out that the only thing they've really got on him is this index. And they say to him, you never learned Latin. This must be a subject index. This, you must be taking advice from higher-ups who know Latin, who are saying, we're more interested in the Trinity. Do a lot about the Trinity. We don't care about that. You know, so it's a, how are you compiling this index? And he goes, no, no, it's just me. I've got a Latin concordance, a, a neutral word list, of, of the Latin Bible in alphabetical order, and I just use that to cross-reference with the English, and uh, you know, then I'm doing my English one from that. And they go, we don't think you can do that. Um, and he says, right, tonight, bring me a Latin concordance, some paper, some quills, and set me, you know I've only got up to L, set me a few words from the second half of the alphabet, and I will, by the morning, have index entries for these if you don't think I can do it myself. They're all right then. And they do, and he does. And morning comes, and with his little bit of Latin, he knows just enough to look up, where's the reference in the uh, English Bible? Um, copy those things. And so he says to them, look, this is not ideological. I'm not doing that. I'm not taking orders from anyone else. All I'm doing is taking every word in the, uh, in the Bible, looking it up over there, translating it over here. Um, so I can't be a heretic because I'm not condensing it down. I'm not applying any sort of remixing, rebalancing to terms. This index is, you know, the map that's as big as the territory, just in alphabetical order. And they buy it. And he gets off with his life. And he goes on to, to have a, a career as a musician for another 40 years, living through all of the religious changes that, that become, all because of the difference between the concordance, that the, the, the index that really is just a word list of everything. Um, that we, that even the archbishops can I agree, okay, doesn't have any ideology, and the index, the subject index, which they think he was doing, where you're saying, these concepts are important to me, don't tell the authorities, but these ones I'm not going to bother with so much. Yeah, yeah. So this, this, this idea of distilling things down um, applies to certain versions of, of the index, and you might lose your life for it, um, because it's ideological, but it doesn't apply to the, the other one. This is, this is important, I think, for when we think about what the index is now. Yeah. If you think about your search engine, or you think about when you take a big PDF and you jump through it with control, you know, control F, 
that's the concordance. That's that you, as long as you know the string of letters you're looking for, you can find it. Jump through your document like that. But there's no intervention. No one's trying to second guess what you want. And you just need to know exactly what you're after. Whereas the back of book index, where an indexer has thought, how are people going to use this? What's the uh, sort of projected intention here? Um, is always going to be mediated. And we have to take on trust that the indexer um, is sort of faithful to the intentions of the book that they're indexing. Yeah, and trying to be impartial. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, because it is a profession. It's one that's kind of, um, yeah, it's overlooked, it's underpaid. It's almost yeah. like translation, isn't it? Um, it's just like yeah, translation. Contemporary yeah. translation. Hard, hard graft, little reward until, you know, recent prizes. Um, and I, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I guess the, the graft lends me to ask about these ambitious projects through time. Um, because you've got uh, like the Library of Alexandria, you've yeah. got um, you've got uh, Marbeck on his own. Um, who um, that anecdote you say he uh, yeah he got off with his life thankfully, but he lost all of that work and then had to, had to start, start again, it yeah. again. Yeah, um, and I guess what what is your like favourite um, kind of anecdote in terms of like the projects? You know, is it uh, Saint Jacques in uh, near Lyon or is it you know, uh, oh, gosh, there's loads. I'll tell you one that I was thinking of on my way here. So we're in, we're in Brick Lane. I got off the tube at Moorgate and I was walking through Finsbury Circus just on my way here. Now, in Finsbury Circus, in the middle of Vict the Victorian period, there was an international congress of librarians. Uh, the first international congress of librarians, I'm going to have to look up the date. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, think no, it's no. 1866, but... Um, it's 1877. 1877. In 1877. Um, in, in, yeah, just about half a mile away from where, where we are now. The uh, Conference of Librarians. And the idea here, um, well, the librarians from, from all over the world, from Australia, from America, from Greece, from, from Western Europe, lots and lots from um, British libraries as well, including the new public libraries, all met to discuss the things that librarians need to discuss, um, shelving techniques, binding techniques, all of these things. But the paper that got everyone talking was um, a paper on the idea of a universal index. Now, how do people use libraries? What do people use libraries for? Well, they want to you know, come to the library and look things up. You can, if you know what book you're looking for, you can find that book and you can use the index at the back of that book. But what if you don't? What if, you know, before there was Google, how did you use a library like a giant brain? A library should be like a giant brain with all of its synapses. And if you have uh, a way of searching it, um, you can treat the library just like that, like a sort of... Uh, um, yeah, sorry to, to say the same thing again, a giant brain. But it needs a universal index. It needs the point of entry where, God, I want to know something about tobacco farming in, in southern Italy. Where do, you know, I look at my teas. Um, that didn't exist. This paper at the, uh, uh, at the conference in 1877 proposed, right, we need to get together. We need to think about the um, universal index of everything so that people can use their library um, in the most kind of comprehensive way. A um, couple of weeks later, people were so moved by that that they met at the London Library on, uh, um, over in St. James's there to say, right, how are we going to do this? And the Index Society was formed uh, uh, late October 1877. And they literally came up with a project for, right, we're going to take all the books, we're going to index them, the, the ones that don't have indexes already, we're going to 
pass that up to a second tier where we say, oh, there's about, you know, let, let's take three dozen subjects that, from botany to geology to, you know, epidemiology, um, and we'll have sub-indexes for them. And then the great thing at the top is we'll have the, you know, the overall index of everything on index cards, in pigeonholes, in a room somewhere. Um, so they start at the bottom, at the ground up, the index society, um, ask all of their members, because, you know, they've advertised membership, all their members, can you go out and index, these are the books that need them, send your slips in, and we'll feed it up. Um, so you have this great sort of quixotic rush of energy in the late 1870s to produce this paper Google. Um, only it runs out of steam. Within about six years, they finally acquired premises down on the Strand. So this is the thing. They lack the funds to rent a place. When they finally do, that sort of initial rush of energy has, has run out. So, um, uh, so unfortunately, the, the Index Society is, is, is a slightly, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, it's, it's one of these sort of grand projects that, uh, um, uh, yeah, that never quite uh, achieves um, it's promise. Yeah. It's promise, exactly, yeah. Um, but it's a lovely thought, this idea of, okay, um, pre-digital, um, how are we going to have the, uh, the universal index of everything? Google didn't just arrive out of nowhere in the middle of the 1990s. This had been an idea. You can really talk about Robert Grosstest as, as the sort of initiator of this idea, but certainly by the middle of the Victorian period, people were thinking, we need this. We need, we need a place to find everything taking the book indexes and joining them up, um, abstracting them into, in, into, its, into, a, uh, well, kind of, uh, into a room, if you like, of, uh, of index cards. There is a place in Belgium, uh, again, that the sort of project re-emerges in the, in the very late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, it's now um, in, uh, in Mons in Belgium. It was originally in Brussels, but it's been moved to, to Mons now, um, where in the, the 1890s, the, in the very first decades of, of the 20th century, before the First World War, disrupted this to do this again, to get uh, index cards for every journal that was published in every uh, sort of, uh, uh, um, every article published in every learned journal, um, and store them in, uh, in a sort of classification system, just like Dewey Decimal, where you could look up um, Anything. It's called the Mundaneum, and it's it, uh, what survives of it is is still kind of extraordinary. Just wall to wall uh, um, punch, cards. punch cards. Yeah, those those kind of lovely little early twentieth century um, drawers um, full of punch cards. Wow. And how 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 were those things kind of read, or how did they evolve? Because um, IBM used um, punch card technology. Um, it, it was to archive. Or to um, it, it was someone's work, wasn't it? It was someone's poetry. That's um, right. That's right. So there's a, an academic um, scholar of Dryden called Guy Montgomery, and he has produced uh, or set out to produce a concordance of Dryden's work. And he's done it using um, index cards, which he stores in shoeboxes. About a quarter of a million uh, of these um, index cards, if I'm not exaggerating. Unfortunately, then he dies. And Montgomery's head of department speaks to somebody else in the department, a, a scholar called Josephine Miles, and says, listen, can you bring out this concordance that's unfortunately currently in the form of uh, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of index cards in uh, manky old shoeboxes? And Miles thinks about it, and she decides that the best way to do it is not through any method that's been 
tested already, not to send this off to the publishers, um, but to use two of the IBM computers. This is the, the, the 1950s, so these are you know, room-sized computers that are uh, um, in another part of the university. So she speaks to some of the programmers there, and over the next five or six years has these sort of scrawly index cards converted into punch cards that the uh, computer is able to organize, to put into alphabetical order, um, and then put into other orders. So you can say, I want all the punch cards in order of how they appear in the poetry, um, and the computer goes uh, and then you say, oh, I want them put into alphabetical order. So by converting them from um, handwritten, uh, dog-eared index cards to machine-readable punch cards, um, Josephine Mars is able to produce that concord, have it printed by the machine, um, but to, to really save, I mean, it actually takes an awful lot of work to, to, to convert the cards from one thing to the other, but it saves a lot of the dog work that indexers do. Now, if you think of an indexer as somebody who reads books before we do and thinks very hard about what it is that we need from them, uh, who makes a call on what are the important concepts, that's intellectual labour. But up until the middle of the century, an indexer did an awful lot of copying and filing as well. Now, Miles's idea was, well, copying and filing, computers can take care of this. So now, if you speak to a professional indexer, they're incredibly professionalised. They'll probably work with at least two screens. They'll have one screen open with the text, another screen open with some indexing software, which can, can't read the book for them, but can put things into alphabetical order um, or put things into the order things appear in the book. You can see if you've got you know, too many things in the A's, am I, or, or, or I've got too much from chapter four here. Um, it, it can be an aid for the, the drudgery of indexing and turn indexing really into what it ought to be, which is a, a sort of intellectual uh, labour of deep reading. I think that the, the analogy with translation is a really useful one, that, that um, they're literary tasks that, that get overlooked, but the amount of intellectual labour um, is really astonishing. These, these are acts of generous, deep reading. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. It is a service. It's, um, yeah, you, we, we, we take it for granted or we don't even consider that indexing translation, there's that liminal zone where one person is trying to find like the right word or yeah. Yeah, just the perfect way yeah. of Let's taking an idea. Stick with that idea of the right word, okay. So I've talked a lot about the, the difference between the, the word index that just takes every word and puts them in alphabetical order. That's your control F jumping through your PDF. And the subject index where the human subjective indexer really thinks about what a reader's going to want, what's the right word. They don't need to use the same words that are in the text. So um, I'll give an example. Uh, um, in the Bible, the most famous story in the Bible, I think, about forgiveness is the story of the prodigal son. Unfortunately, it doesn't use the word forgiveness, and it doesn't use the word mercy, and it doesn't use the word prodigal. So control F is not going to take you to that. Thing. Now, any human indexer indexing the prodigal, indexing the Bible, if, if that were a thing, <laughs> would know, okay, prodigal, I need to put, you know, under P, the fact that this story turns up, wherever it is in, in Luke, I think, um, because this is the way that people are going to use this. I'll give you another example. Uh, um, imagine a political book covering the last five or six years of British politics, um, and every time the book says... Downing Street said such and such, or the Prime Minister said such and such, or news came out of number 10. Now, Control-F doesn't know that number 10 is a person. 
Control F isn't going to, isn't going to, but the indexer will realize that these are all, you know, essentially metonyms for the prime minister. The computer also won't know that over the last five or six years we've had three different prime ministers, so you need to know what point in the text it's happening to, to know whether that comes under May, Theresa, Cameron, David, or, or Johnson, Boris. Um, the human indexer makes all of those calls, knows where to put the thing. If you're looking for all of D Theresa May's decisions, then when it says number 10 decided and the year is 2018, that goes under such and such. Yeah. So the, yeah, the careful expert reading that an indexer does, that, that, that type of labor makes everything so much easier for when we're reading history books, makes us, um, well, computers still can't quite take care of those calls, knowing... Like the time and the space, that nuance. Mm. Uh, the computer can't do that, but an indexer has that humane sense where it goes, I know this is a different person. Exactly, exactly, and, yeah. Um, is, is, there, um, is there an occasion where the index goes wrong? Um, like catastrophically or humorously? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You mentioned Calvino's If on a Winter's Night. Well, I'll give you another example, actually. From So I talked a bit earlier about the uh, the shift from handwritten books, from, from, from manuscript books to, to printed books. In the days when, when um, books were all copied by hands, so we're talking about the, the uh, um, 1300s, 1400s. In the late 1400s, I found a book in a library in Cambridge um, where the index just doesn't work. I looked something up in the index, it says, well, that's on page 67, go to page 67, not there. Is it there at all? So I flick back through, yeah, that's about six pages earlier. So what's happened here is the monk who's copying out the book, then copies out the index, and of course he's been copying from a, a slightly bigger format book into the one that he's now writing. So he's got a few more pages, everything has shifted on a bit, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't really know what an index is, so he's just written the same number as in the exemplar that he's working from. So you've got this thing with broken links. It's, it's, it's like, a, a, um, uh, like a kind of mad web page where, where the links will take you somewhere, but not to the place where you're expecting. It'll say, take you... Uh, uh, error 404 or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or, or to an offset. You know, you, 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 you want to jump to the BBC news page, but it takes you to the BBC sport page or, you know, something like that. The, the links all take you somewhere, but just not quite where you're expecting. And that's because um, the poor chap, he, he's, he signed it, actually. Monks would often do this. Because copying is such a long task, they often... Uh, sort of write their name at the end going, uh, this, yeah, this history was copied by, in this case, John Lutton, pity me. Um, poor old John Lutton doesn't really know what he's doing. Yeah, he's just and... put himself in posterity. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really lovely sort of failed, yeah, index fail. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I, I, I love that story. And um, there's, there's so many anecdotes like that in there where, yeah, you... you um, you got the anecdote of Norman Mailer and William F. Buckley Jr. Oh right, okay. I mean, so this this stuff is stuff like that is just priceless. Yeah, this is the thing. When I was writing the book, um, when I tell people I'm writing a book about indexes, the thing that most people said to me is, "Have you got the one about Norman Mailer?" So this story, this story essentially goes that William Buckley um, ran for for mayor of New York unsuccessfully, but then he wrote a book about it, um, uh, a sort of witty, snide book, and um, one of the characters in it is Norman Mailer, and he sends a copy to Norman Mailer, who's got this difficult, rivalrous friendship with. Sends a copy to Norman Mailer, and next to Mailer, Norman in the index, he's written, hi. Um, people would always tell me this, you know, because it's a story about Mailer's narcissism. The first thing he does is going to turn to the index, and Buckley is 
you know, he's uh, uh, foreseen it. Foreseen it. Yeah. yeah. Buckley knows he's going to do this, and so the joke is on him for. I knew you were going to look yourself up. Um, I heard this story so many times. Um, I didn't think it was true, and so um, I managed. I, I, I can't remember how I found out, but Mailer's library survives intact in an archive in Austin, Texas, uh, and I was able to contact the library and say, "Do you have in in Mailer's library um, his copy of Buckley's?" Uh, the unmaking of a mayor came out. Sure, we do. Could you just tell me if the index actually has? And sure enough, it does. So uh, um, I really love this story. Firstly, because it's the one I heard all the time, but I just thought it was an urban myth. The fact that it's there and we've got a picture of it, um, I think, gave me a real sort of delight. It's when research sort of leads results that you just didn't. That's too good. I don't yeah, think it's I was going to get that. Too good to be that. true. <laughs> and it, and too it good happens. to be true. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. And um, I, I guess uh, like we, we've been discussing this for 50 minutes and there's so much material in here that's absolutely gold. Um, I really enjoyed reading this book, Dennis, um, because one, I, I love that kind of ephemeral knowledge of something that I, I just don't understand or I, I just took for granted, but actually has repercussions that affect us now, like Google and its indexing. Um, for our listeners, I just want to ask, what have we not discussed in your book that you're particularly proud of, fond of, just as, like, just one last part in... Okay, well, can I... I'll come to that, but there's, there's one... Th if there's one takeaway that we have discussed, but I do want to just reiterate, it is this. When you use a search engine, you're using an 800-year-old invention that was invented by monks. Um, that, that there's no difference between... I got lost on my way here, so I had to Google it. It's probably the, the you know three dozenth time that I'd use Google today. Probably the same for you. That is all um, medieval technology invented once in Paris and once in Oxford. Thank you for listening. I wish to thank Dennis for sharing his time, extensive research and enthusiasm. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations.